Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Director of Stranger at Home, Louis Remesar was born in Havana, Cuba, before he exiled to the United States and became a proud citizen. A graduate of Columbia University, he studied film production under both Andrew Saras and Milos Forman. He began his directing career on the New York stage and has been a faculty member at the Screen Actors Guild Conservatory in New York City, as well as the Film and Television Department at UCLA. He is also a member of the Writers Guild of America and International Documentary Association. He's making Stranger at Home in support of all soldiers, active duty or veteran, who have or are still suffering from war stress injuries. Especially, he dedicates this documentary to the memory of his favorite cousin, Luis Garcia, who served in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Luis Remesar, Beth Dolan, and Sheila Higgins won the Spring Roy Dean Film Grant for 2017. And Carol, I know you are very proud to have Lewis and Beth on the show today. Yes, Claire. Thank you so much, Lewis and Beth, for joining us. I'm uh, thrilled that you won the Dean Award and for uh, your film and all the work that you're doing. So what I wanted to do today was to cover more about Stranger at Home uh, and uh, with both you and Beth to tell me more about it. So I want to start by reading your log line so the audience has a clear understanding of the film. Um, decorated Navy psychologist turned whistleblower risks life and career for the total mental health care of active duty soldiers, veterans, and their families. And I would like to think that there's a great story behind how you found this film and started on this journey. So can you share that with us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we want to thank you, Carol, for having us on the podcast. And also thank you, thank you and From the Heart Productions for being our fiscal sponsor all this time and for the Roy Dean grant for you know, awarding us this, this great honor. Absolutely. Um, yeah. oh, the judges uh, so, just love yeah, your let, work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me tell you a little bit how we got interested. I, you know, the three of us are civilians. Have we, you know, Beth and I have been married for a long time, and we co we co write, we co produce. We've been doing this for years and years. Uh, and Sheila is someone who I met on a production about 20 years ago, uh, just like I met you in a production some 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, we hit it off. And when this came up, we called her and said, are you interested in working on this? And she said, yes, because, you know, I'm affected by it in my, you know, in my household. Uh, I come from a household of first responders, police and fire, um, uh, you know, people who worked in that line of work. So she noticed it in her family. And both Beth and I come from families that had a lot of military people in them. Uh, 
for me, it was my my favorite cousin, who was this amazing, wonderful, funny human being, um, who I really looked up to. Uh, he was like seven years older than me, and he was in the Marines in the '60s and '70s. And the you know the 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 uh, joke around the family was, oh, he's stationed in Hawaii. He's not even seeing any action, uh, and you know he's got a cushy job. And then he came back and got married, had kids, and when he hit his mid-40s, his life just fell apart. He wow. Moved, he left his family, moved back in with his parents, became a hermit. Uh, and I, I saw him until he died, you know, a couple of years ago. And I still enjoy talking to him and hanging out with him, but his life just was never the same. And about two years before he died, I went to see him, and he said, I, you know, I've been dying to talk to you. I'm glad you're here because I have something to share with you. He said, um, I have, I, when I was in the Marines, I signed a non-disclosure uh, order. Uh, and that's not what it's called, but that I couldn't talk about this for a certain number of years. And this has now expired, so I can tell you. He said, I saw combat in Cambodia. And, wow. and, and then it, it suddenly clicked for me. That, and he wasn't allowed to tell anybody about it. So it suddenly clicked for me that he'd been holding this in for 40, 50 years and had destroyed his life. Um, so I, that really affected me very deeply. And then we, we, used, we used to do a podcast on Block Talk Radio uh, called um, Being Deliberately. And uh, Beth had interviewed a woman who was doing work with veterans, and she said, you know, this needs to be brought to the light. This needs to be. Uh, so we set, we started on that path, just like we need to make uh, a documentary about this. And we started just doing some research, just talking to people and uh, interviewing people on the, on, the, uh, on the podcast and so on. Um, and then I have a f- my best friend is a, is one of the people that we interviewed on the podcast is a social worker at the VA here in Los Angeles. And I had lunch with him, and uh, he really opened my eyes to what happens to all these people when they come back. I had this naive assumption that once you serve, particularly if you serve in time of war, when you come back, the government takes care of you in terms of your health care, at least in terms of your health care. I've heard right. about the GI Bill and all that. Um, and he said, he, he kind of laughed and he said, no, that's not entirely true. It have, you have to prove that your uh, disability, your illness is service related. And he said, and that's what I do as a social worker. I get them their benefits. And he gave me an example of something that really made me do like a, a 180 which was he told me of a case that he had of a Vietnam veteran who was suffering from terminal lung cancer. And he was trying to get him benefits and getting his family survivor benefits. But because he had not served in a legal war, he had served like my cousin in Cambodia. There was no record of him being exposed to Agent Orange, which is what exactly was causing his his lung cancer, so he couldn't get benefits. That's the kind of red tape that he needed to go through. Mm -hmm. 
And what he ended up doing was he found out that this man had served aboard a submarine that had eventually been retrofitted for asbestos. And he wrote it up as an asbestos-related lung injury and was able to get him benefits. But it's that kind of, you know, covering up and and the red tape that started to on this journey for us. Uh, oh, that's amazing. And one of the people that we met, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's just amazing that all roads seem to lead to Rome here. You're on, you're on to something, and you knew it from uh, from your conversation with uh, your cousin Louis Garcia. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and Beth, Beth's two brothers went to West Point, and they served uh, in time of peace, but they were in the military. Um, so. So in doing our research, we started to reach out to people, mostly psychologists and psychiatrists, because we wanted to understand what this this condition was. You know, you hear PTSD. It stands for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the military and veterans don't like the word disorder because it's not a disorder. It's really it's really a, a, an illness. It's a really re- a, a real injury. Yeah, it's, 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 the it's, brain the brain changes. Uh, in the training that these people go through and then what they see in combat, that trauma that we were talking about before we got on the air, it actually physiologically changes the brain. And so we're not trained to kill. We're just not. They have to be trained. The the edict in the military is you're trained to kill or you're going to be killed. And so the realization that that there's no retraining for this brain, this physio- physiological condition when they return was startling to us. So yeah. anyway, Lou, I, I jumped yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's and it's more than just PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's more than post-traumatic stress disorder uh, medically or psych- psychiatrically is really defined as 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 a respo- as a basically the way it's defined is. Uh, hyper awareness, hyper sensitivity, and it comes from your body getting addicted to a certain level of cortisol, of, of adrenaline in your bloodstream. So when you when you live that heightened uh, reality on a day to day basis, moment to moment basis, as you do in combat, when you come back, you can't lower those levels. So. That flight or fight or flight syndrome that we experience when we turn a corner, a dark corner, and somebody jumps out, they experience that all the time. They can't shut it off. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because that's just one very narrow uh, war stress injury. Uh, there are others that are more prevalent uh, and more, more insidious. And one of them is called moral injury, uh, which is defined by a psychiatrist named Jonathan Shea, who was a VA psychiatrist in Boston for many years uh, dealing with Vietnam veterans. And what that is is when someone in authority um, or someone you trust or, or the hierarchy, that the, 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 the structure that you live under, uh, you get an order that you know goes against that code and you feel like you need to execute it. Or you witness someone doing something that goes against that code. Or you 
yourself do something that you recognize is against your own moral code or the moral code of the military organization that you participate in. And that, that malady is really widespread and really insidious. Uh, and the treatments for the two are very, very different and very specific. Uh, so in doing all this research, we found this psycho- psychologist uh, up in uh, Seattle, uh, his name is Dr. Mark Russell. Uh, Mark was an enlist. He comes from a Marine family. His father was a Marine. He enlisted in the Marines uh, out of high school. Um, he served in the Marines for 12 years. While in the Marines, he decided he wanted to become a psychologist because he he saw a lot of these war stress injuries and the effects they were having on the servicemen, but also on their families. Uh, he went to graduate school, got his master's in the Marines, then needed to make a commitment to get his Ph.D., and he couldn't do it with the Marine schedule. So he uh, left the Marines, went to, got his Ph.D., um, then went back into the service once he, was, he had his Ph.D. as a Navy psychologist. And he was called to serve. He was the head. He was made the head of the um, psychiatric department at Bremerton Naval Hospital in Washington. And they were the first hospital that was deployed uh, at the beginning of the Iraq invasion. And they set up camp in Spain, in Rota, Spain, uh, to take wounded that were coming in off the Iraq, off the Iraq theater. Uh, and when he got there, he found out that they weren't taking mental health seriously. They were just, they, they were not, it was not a priority at all. And he started to warning them, he started to warn them and say, look, you know, these people are going to come off and they're going to need help. They're not, they're not just going to have broken legs and, and bullet wounds. They're going to have psychological wounds that need to be attended to. And right. they said, yeah, 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 you know, it's not, it's not a priority. And he became, began a campaign to improve that. And he started creating programs, and he started writing memos, and he started doing research, and he started doing surveys. One of the things he found out when he came back from deployment was he did a survey and found out that 90% of the mental health providers in uniform that he surveyed had not had any specific training in dealing with war stress injuries. The, the mental health providers didn't know about how to treat people. Oh my gosh! That's what a, what an That's incredible right. uh, thing to find out! And yeah. so, what did he do? So that started him. That yeah. started him on a path of trying to correct this. And the more the, the more deeply he dug, the more he found out that this has been going on since World War One, where. The military, military medicine in particular, is ignoring their own research, their own studies that say this is what needs to be done. But they're pitting it against the idea that it may deplete their fighting force, that people are going to start faking the injuries. And so that's kind of the mindset, uh, and therefore the mental health, seeking mental health, uh, seeking help for mental health in the armed forces is considered taboo uh, uh, socially. So there's a lot of stigma attached to seeking help. And even after they leave the military, uh, veterans are reluctant to seek help because of the stigma attached. 
they're afraid they might not be able to purchase a firearm. Um, oh my gosh! If they're you know if they go see a psychiatrist, uh, and so on. so it's really and it becomes really widespread, you know. Um, so what happened to him is he basically just battled and battled this, and he was a pretty you know pretty responsible um, member of the psychiatric community in the Navy. He was the head of entire departments, and eventually he ended up going to civilian, the civilian authorities. He filed a complaint against the um, Undersecretary of Defense in charge of uh, in charge of uh, men, uh, in charge of uh, Navy medicine uh, for negligence and willful uh, for willful negligence and uh, and harm. Uh, to to the servicemen that he was trying to service. And that pretty much got him a lot of notoriety, got him to testify in front of Congress and all kinds of things, but eventually ended his career because he started getting negative reviews uh, two in a row, which was the kiss of death in terms of advancement. He was yes. not going to get promoted. He was not going to move anymore. Right. You know. So he left, and now as as a... As a civilian, he's a he's the head of uh, the psychology department at Antioch University up in Seattle. Uh, he and another, uh, the head of the psychology department at Tulane University, uh, Dr. Charles Figley, he's a Vietnam vet. They've partnered together, and they're putting together a class action lawsuit against the Department of Defense to force them to enforce their own policies. Which they have not. Wow, been doing. It's, even, it, it, it's it's an historical it's an historical uh, class action lawsuit, um, and it's in process. And you can't they're not going. You can't ask the government for money in in a class action lawsuit. But what they're asking for, as Lou just said, is policy change. Their own policies that they have recommended for for over you know for for decades now, but they do not implement. So there's. <coughs> And that's the way that they believe any change will come about for mental health within the military. And they have some, they have some very strong precedent, uh, particularly the U.K. and yeah. Israel, where, where these changes have been implemented, uh, and the results are astonishing. Our, our rate of... Our conservative rate of, and this is just PTSD, not the other war stress injuries, but our rate of PTSD is estimated at around 18%. It's estimated that 18%, and there's, it's probably higher because of the stigma and the way the military does these surveys, but it's estimated about 18%. 18% of soldiers coming back from the field uh, are diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, it was similar across the board in England, the U.K., and in Israel. After they instituted the changes, their, dro their rate of PTSD dropped to 3%. Oh, how wonderful. Okay? Within, okay, within right. a couple of years. And the, the main thing that they instituted was they limit the amount of exposure. There is an algorithm that predicts that the most that a human being can withstand of that kind of stress on a daily basis is something like 260 consecutive days. We sent, and then 
accumulative over a number of years, there's also a limit to the exposure. Uh, the UK and Israel instituted that change. It was one of the main changes they instituted. Uh, here, we send these kids back uh, over and over again. And they're kids. I mean, the, 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 the actual boots on the ground uh, are very young men and women. You know, they're not seasoned. Some of them are so young that their brains really haven't developed so where they can handle some of these situations that they're thrown into, that they're expected to handle. So 260 days is the magic number, and they can't do any more than that. Something like that. I'm not not sure that's the exact number, but it's in that range. It's at 200 and something days. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... But the results in England and in in Israel have been astonishing. So they have that precedent. And in England, it actually came about of a class action suit. Soldiers sued uh, the Ministry, Ministry of Defense yeah. because they, they felt they didn't get adequate mental health care. Um, and the Ministry of the Court in uh, England actually rejected their lawsuit, saying, no, you're actually lucky that you didn't get that care because that care does not fix the problem. It does not help it. It makes it worse. What we need to do is change these policies. So they changed the policy out of a rejected lawsuit. And, and the specific elements of policy change in, in England that they're, all, that they're going for here in the United States is, is zero tolerance for stigma. And as Lou said, the deployment times and amounts those specifics, to catch it before it, it worsens, because once the trauma builds, it's harder to rehabilitate someone. It really yeah. is. The policy right now is called frontline psychology, and what they do is they send psychiatric workers to the front to patch these kids up and then send them back to the front rather than taking oh them gosh. out of the field. They're oh. taking them out of the field doing a real assessment, and then devising a plan to get them back to health, you know. So it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid. Um, and, you know, the, the VA gets a lot of bad press, but the VA is really overwhelmed, and, it, and, it's, and it's an inadequate bureaucracy, really. But it's over, overrun by a lot of what could have been prevented through preventive care. So in other words, exactly. we train. One of the things Mark talks about is we train these kids, we train them to overcome their aversion to killing because they have to. It's do or die for them. But then we don't spend any effort in training that out of them when they come back and all the ramifications involved in that. It's an amazing thing, but I remember reading that, uh, like in World War One and uh, early World War Two, that they taught men to shoot, and they had a bullseye, and they mm-hmm. were good. They they learned how to shoot, but when they got in war, they didn't want to kill the other. They didn't want to kill anybody. They didn't want to shoot at That's a human right. being, so they had to come back. That's right. And most of, most put a body on there. Most of the and shooting. They don't shoot. Most of the shooting. Most of the shooting in those early battles. Before, yeah. uh, even during World War II, it was shooting over the, the enemy's head because people yes. did, had an aversion to killing. Mm-hmm. The yes. new psychological, uh, there's a guy who we try to interview, uh, but we, we've seen some clips of. He wrote a book called On Killing. His name is, um, 
what's his name? I've, uh, it'll come to me. I'll blurt it out during the conversation. Anyway, he, <laughs> he, he basically talks about how, um, you know, with a lot of pride, and rightfully so, he's a psychiatrist who helped develop uh, technologies to train people how to kill. Uh, and one of the statistics he, he cites is the the Falklands War, when the British went against the Argentinians over the Falklands. And I remember this was like 20 years ago, and it was, it was really, it was kind of a skirmish. It wasn't really like a big war. But right. apparently the British won because the British had been trained under this new methodology, and they were shooting to kill while the Argentinians were still trained under the old methodology, and they were shooting over the British's head. Oh, my gosh. And that, to me, is astonishing that we can train this aversion to killing out of someone and then not deal with it when they come back, you know, not, not relieve them of that, of that burden. Right. Right. Because it's against human nature. I honestly think we all came in here to love oh, yeah. and support and nurture each other. And then the Absolutely. society became so competitive and you have to be better than someone else. And mm-hmm. uh, But this is what's so wonderful about our about the creative side that you both are working on is because when you are out of the competitive side but into the creative world, like you and Beth and Sheila are working in, then there's no ego here. It's only what is the story and how can we benefit society. So you found yeah, absolutely. a really great story. Oh, it's, a, it's an absolutely fantastic story because it's full of issues. But really the story, we want to tell the story from his personal point of view because here's a guy who is treating uh, all these war stress injuries and he ends up being injured himself, morally injured, because he's, be- he's betrayed by the people that he thought were supporting him, the organization that you know had honor and a code that he was trying to live by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a, it's an amazing story of of grit. And the other thing with him is that he's got three kids that have served or are still in the military. Oh, so he's, a, he's a, he's, he, he's the son of a military family. He was a 26 year veteran. He's a psychologist dealing specifically with war stress injuries. And he's the parent of people who serving, who were serving in the military. Mm-hmm. This guy's the entire package. His, his story wraps all the facets of, how this, uh, these war stress injuries, how mental illness affects, you know, a family, affects, affects a community. Right. And, so and you're going also, to follow his story? How, how far back will you go to tell us his story? Uh, we're, well, we're, we're, our plan right now is to, if you look at the short that we did, that's yeah. kind of how we're going to tell the story, but we're going to be really focusing on what happened to him as a military psychologist, because that's that's the epiphany for him, you know, where his his journey uh, from the onset of the um, from the onset of the Iraq War 
up until now is really what we want to focus on. But also, but we want to tell it through his personal story. He, his personal story is also, uh, aside from the military, he was married to a Japanese woman, was stationed in Japan, married to a Japanese woman, had two boys. She died horribly long battle with breast cancer while he was trying to go to graduate school. Um, and then she died, and a few years after she died, when the boys were teenagers, he was told he was going to be deployed to Iraq, uh, oh. to, to Rhoda, to support the Iraq invasion. And the Navy wanted him to have a plan for his two sons. He needed a caregiver for his two sons. What was he going to do? So he tri- broke, you know, he tried all kinds of things. He ended up meeting a woman through email in Japan who was a divorcee and had a a 12-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter. And they ended up corresponding and hooking up and really liking each other. She came to visit, and they decided to get married. And she can't move. They got married real quick. She moved in to their house, and he left and left her with two teenage kids and her daughter. And she's someone we really want to get on camera because we want to get her perspective as a family member supporting his struggle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, you know, and she took on the job of raising life. the kids, raising yes. the, his two boys, and and yep. she obviously yep. did a yep. good job if they're both in the service. All three of them is her daughters in the service, too. Well, and, and, that's, <laughs> and that's another point of... That's another point of the film, which you know we we touched on just briefly. But this trauma impacts not just the service member, you know, the, the, the highest level of trauma. Trauma is trauma. The nature of trauma is what we're exploring in this film. The highest level of trauma is what those who serve, especially in combat, see and do against their their moral code, their human nature, and 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 that impact directly ripples into their family members. The, the people that have to, the, the person returning, the, the title of the film, Stranger at Home, we, we chose that title. That's our working title right now because they come back and they people don't know them anymore. And, the, and they don't know themselves in the new environment. Right. They don't know how to, how to be. And so, and so that family component, that the loved one's component, the caregiver's component, is such a powerful aspect of this story, and I think it's reflective of everything that's going on in our society right now. We're all impacted and struggling with, with trauma right now, with, with just everything that's been going on, from Mother Nature to senseless massacres going on on our own soil. And that's a big ripple effect. And so that's part of what we're exploring in a very big way in this film. So this woman, she jumped in at a time when he needed her most. His job was going to be taken away from him if he did not find uh, appropriate care for his sons. In order, he wanted to go and fight, and not fight, but serve his country. And they said, you've got to find somebody to take care of your kids. And he didn't have anybody. So he was, he was in desperate straits. And, and she stepped in and said, yes, I will go through this with you. And, and what they went through after that, with everything that he went through as he became a military whistleblower, from a decorated mm-hmm. career officer to a, to a whistleblower, was extraordinary. He had a complete uh, mental breakdown on his own because of the stress. 
they threatened, the military threatened his life for opening his mouth and telling well, the well, truth. Well, they, they didn't officially threaten his life, but he got, he got death threats anonymously. That's Let's enough. Let's just clarify that. He, right. did, he didn't get systemically threatened, his life threatened. Right. Oh, but my enough to, enough. Yes. Yep, and then he had his career, as, as we shared, you know, he did not get promoted. And um, that, that uh, took away a 20, an exemplary 26-year military career from him. See, this is, so, this is incredible, with 26 years, because 30 is probably, I mean, if he had just put in four more yeah. years, he would have probably gotten more money, gotten a lot of uh, exactly. more things than benefits. And so it had to be that's horrific exactly right, for Carol. him to stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's exactly right, Carol. That, you know, and, and so his whole life it was impacted directly. And then this woman, his, his wife, who, whom he's still married to, and they've overcome so much. It's, we, we so are looking forward to uh, sitting down with her on our upcoming shoot in Seattle in a, in a few weeks to really hear what she went through as well. And this is just, this, this I think, is the inspiration that, we all need to hear that we're all impacted by trauma, yeah. and, um, and, and 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 the impact of what they're trying to do, the impact of this class action suit, um, extends well beyond the military, because one of the things that that, that he talks about is, and he's also he's also historian in this area, so he he really knows how the policy has evolved. And where where the origins of it are, and I I, I won't go into detail here because we, we don't have that long a time, but that'll go be in the documentary. Uh, there is a there is a history of policy, and there are reasons why the policy is the way it is, and why it took the court in England to reverse that policy. But mm-hmm. one of the things he talks about is the military traditionally has been dragged kicking and screaming into making policy changes in, uh, in civil liberties and social areas. But once they institute a policy, then society follows like, it spreads into society like wildfire. And he points out to uh, desegregation. Yes, yes. Which did happen in World War II, after World mm-hmm. War II. And mm-hmm. then it became a topic and led to the civil rights movement and so on. Then uh, when they repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and people were allowed to be openly gay in the military, then that spread into society really fast. So now gay marriage, you know, same-sex marriage is the law of the land. Yes, yes. So, and so this could make mental, a major saying, change, huh? Exactly. He's saying making mental health changes in the military will spread into society very quickly. Mm-hmm. And as you know, if you look at you know any news right now, we're completely insane in this society. I we know. don't know what's <laughs> fake news. We don't know what's real news. We don't know. It's all propaganda and manipulation and dysfunction. And we're in sore need of a real conversation and real focus and real investment in the mental health of our population. Right. So and that's I think that the this, direction of the yeah. film is to explain yeah. to us 
what how the mind works, how war is not a natural thing. To kill other people is not natural. And uh, what we can do to uh, all the changes that we can make that would that are on the policy but not being utilized could uh, save lives and save um, families. Because you're talking about the caretakers. Yeah. I mean, this uh, Japanese woman that he married must have been quite an angel to be able to go through all of this stress. Because they say that lawsuits oh. are like the number one stress. Well, think about it. She's a, she's a newlywed. Yeah. <laughs> she's a newlywed, and they had a kid too. So by the time, by the time he left, I, I believe by the time he left, she was already pregnant. So, oh goodness. So she's she's already. I, I may be wrong about that timing, but I mean, she was pregnant with a twelve-year-old daughter and two teenage boys that she just met, and she just took it right on and said, "Yep, you go ahead, peace of mind." I got it. I got it handled. That's a strong woman. Yes, it is. Yeah. He was very lucky to find yeah. her. Well, yeah. and the caretakers. Your part about bringing that out is really important, Beth and Lewis, because we just we funded a film several years ago that just got finished and it aired at the Reagan Museum for its yeah. California a premiere. And it and she started out with the title Caretakers, but then she changed it to the weight of honor. Because the, yes, so ma'am. many so many mothers or sisters or wives had to give up their entire lives and only focus on the returning soldiers to care for them. And that is an incredible concept when you delve into their lives and see how uh they are they are they become caretakers and I guess that's what happened with his wife. She had to turn her attention to supporting her husband and caring for him to get him through all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean and it and it, 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 it really it spread the this spreads this these injuries, the the effects of them spread widely. I mean there's studies now on kids who have grown up with inherited PTSD. Oh no. And it's a, you know, uh Charles Figley, the other guy who's who's uh, featured in our documentary, Dr. Dr. Charles Figley, one of his areas of expertise is the secondary effects that it that it has on caregivers and not just family members, but psychologists and psychiatrists who are treating these people and how that affects them. Yes. It's it's a very insidious kind of injury. And, and, you know, again, back to to the discussion of the nature of trauma, you know, um, really having a a much greater compassion in our discussions about it and and thus removing stigma about it. I mean, if you have a broken arm, you go and get your arm set. But, But we don't have that. These are unseen injuries, but they've, the symptoms of them don't necessarily present right away, um, and that's where the family is really impacted. There's there's just so much <clears throat> there's so much that changes for someone, especially in combat, when they return. And today they're 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 just they're there in country, and the next day they're at their dinner table at home. Whereas back in World Wars One and Two, they had a ship 
they they sailed on a ship, there was a bit of decompression time with their units. Now they're so quick to be let out and returned, and they're sitting at their family table, and they don't know who they are. And well, they, they don't know who they are without the, their unit because mm-hmm. they're yeah. they're forged right. into. Those are the only people they trust, and then suddenly they get back, and poof, everybody goes away. Right. Yes. And right. and 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 so you know. To, to fit them back into sus, into sus, excuse me society is 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 our incumbent duty for what they have done for us you know in world war 2 uh frank our fdr instituted a program he saw the great need for mental health reconditioning for our troops coming back and he instituted a program in world war 2 that was that was done and was very successful. In fact, it was documented by documentarian filmmaker, the great Don Houston, who was an enlisted soldier at the time in the Army. He, he did a documentary called Let There Be Light. People can go and see that on YouTube right now. This film, there are no actors in it. It is all soldiers coming back, and, and, and it's very, it's black and white, but it shows the program. It shows art therapy. It shows the family being brought in. It shows them being kept with their units for a long time. The, the transformation of these soldiers who go through this reconditioning program was astonishing to see them at the end of this film. This film, unfortunately, was shelved right after the end of World War II. Well, it wasn't just shelved. Um, it was declassified. The, the film was classified, classified, so it never saw the light of day. And the army commissioned another film to replace it called Shades of Grey, which was done. It was not a documentary. <laughs> it was done with actors. There were no there were no actors of color in it. Mm-hmm. Everybody, you know, it was all white. Uh, Let there be light is real soldiers. It's a documentary. They are all kinds of shapes and colors and shades and families and. You know, uh, and so the, the film was classified, and it wasn't until the Carter administration that uh, John Huston petitioned the Carter administration to release the film under the information of the Freedom of Information Act, and it was only then that the film was declassified. So it didn't see the light of day until the 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! And the and the. And the point, and the point of this is, is that there, this this film is a recording. This is a blueprint of what worked, what was successful, and there has not been another reentry program, reconditioning program for our soldiers since that time, and that's heinous. That is, it that, is. that's the crime that's going on here, and and that's what. You know, our film is is shining a spotlight on, and what Dr. Russell, our main character, is here to say, we have a blueprint. Why the hell, excuse my French, aren't we using it to help these people? You know. Oh, so, I'm so glad you wait, told us the, about this with Houston. Uh, you know, because Houston, uh, my friend Sonny Fasoulis in Houston met in World War II because Houston was. Mm. Of filming, and they would go on these bombing runs, and um, one of them in particular, only about 20 to 30 percent of the airplanes came back, and Houston was on this plane yeah. with Sonny, and Sonny yeah. <laughs> said he, he was hysterical. He'd say, oh, my God, that's a great shot. Oh, better shot over here, and he was running around <laughs> <Yeah>. his camera, <laughs> and there was all of this 
explosions and the flak going off and all this stuff. And Sonny said he never thought about dying. Sonny knew he wasn't going to die, and uh, Houston never did either. He didn't let it affect him. Wow. He looked at it as an artist. So um, yeah. I think that he yeah, I think would, he ended up doing. Yeah. I, I think he ended up doing four films for the army. He yeah. did. Oh, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah. Amazing. Very interesting. Yeah. He's a great guy, yeah, Houston was. Well, the, the other thing that, that these guys are talking about and, and, they're, and the, the, what they want to sue for, what they want to ask for in the lawsuit, is uh, the establishment of a mental health corps, behavioral, uh, behavioral health corps. Uh, because in, in the military now, there's a corps for everything. There's a medical corps, there's a nursing corps, there's a veterinary corps for the service animals. But there is no behavioral <laughs> sciences or mental health corps. It's under military medicine, and it's really splinter. He talks about there's three different entities that are responsible within military <laughs> medicine, and they don't talk to each other. One of wow. the things he talks about that we, we, he talks about in our short is when he got to Japan, he was the head of a base servicing 5,000 Marines and two other bases. And he was the oh. only one that was allowed to people for war stress injuries. All oh, how could he do that? Mental health, because all the other mental health providers on the base, the clinics and stuff, could only see people if their injury was not related to combat because they weren't certified by the military. So he had a three-month waiting list just to diagnose people yeah. and oh create goodness. a plan of treatment for them. Oh, incredible. And you asked how he did that, Carol. He didn't. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That was the height. That was the height of his return from Iraq when it was when they were all coming back and the onslaught and and the base that he was stationed on in Japan was the depot for for those who had been sent back many many times to the front line. And so he was really getting the really broken ones. Oh and, my goodness. And I don't like that word broken, but those who had far those who couldn't those who couldn't be patched up and sent back That's to the right. front lines. And so he lost so many Marines on his watch. They were committing suicide left and right, falling through the cracks because there was no real mental health caregiving plan in place. He was the only one, and that's when he fell apart. So we had a guy who was trying to keep all of his soldiers patched together, and then he fell apart. But like what I was saying, not to digress, but what I was saying was, so the, one of the things they're, they're asking for is the establishment of a behavioral health corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that like the Army Corps of Engineers, in times of peace, when there's a national emergency where there's trauma, like Vegas, where, you know, 50-some-odd people got killed, they can move in as a as a as a core mm-hmm. and and see people and treat people and offer people guidance as to how to handle their grief, how to handle the trauma. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we're, but we're I just think we're going to have to find another time, another name besides mental health because that has such a stigma, you know, uh, if we could find another way to say uh you know, something positive or something uh in that would n- not have this stigma. Well, we need a new name. Well, I, I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to open up a discussion on like Facebook, a public discussion about what is mental health. And it's yes. one of the things I want to ask these guys because it's certainly not the absence of mental illness. 
Just like just yeah. like physical health, it's not just the absence of illness. But that seems to be the the orientation of our semantics in our society that we look at health as the absence of illness. You know. So what is mental health to me? You know, to me mental health is being balanced, being healthy, being happy. Uh there was, I, I, speaking of films, I, I, I'm sure you've seen Michael Moore's uh, Where to Invade Next. Right. Have you? Right. Yeah. No, I haven't well, seen a segment it. Well, there's a segment there where he goes to, I think it's Finland, and he goes to a school and he's interviewing the teachers and the principal. And in this school, and, and, and this is a country, it might be Iceland, where it was like last on the educational uh hierarchy list in the country and the world and within three years it shot to number one so he was trying to find out how they did it and this is these are the things he found out one kids only go to school three to four hours a day a major part of that is is involved in play not study kids don't get any homework and the teacher's mandates and this is the one that got me the teacher's mandate is to create happy citizens. Oh, my gosh, how lovely. And, <laughs> and they're the number one educated country in the world. Their, their educational standards have shot to number one in the world. We are lingering around 23, 25. You know, we're like near the bottom of industrialized countries. Amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. I I love your question, Carol. I mean, other words other than mental health. You know, for me, it's it's about total well-being, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. Like, how do you find that? And once you've found that, how do you maintain that? And I think that's the the growing discussion that is starting to bubble within our society. It, It just some of the psychologists that we've interviewed on the journey of this film about our our soldiers, they they choose words like mental fitness that helps those who are coming forward to be treated, bypassing the stigma as best as they can. They use that like they they tap into the idea that they understand physical fitness. So let's get with mental fitness. Yes. So you know it's it's real right. It's coming mental up with a new a good paradigm. Topic. A new paradigm, because, uh, look, when your mind isn't working, your body doesn't work, because you cannot have a a good functioning body when the mind is not uh, balanced. And this is a very good word, um, (laughs) balanced, uh, Lewis. You really want to pay attention to the words that people are using when they come back and talk Mm -hmm. about uh, what is healthy mental health. What is a person with a good attitude is what we're talking about. And maybe it's maybe attitude is another. Maybe it's balanced attitude, something like that. But keep looking for the right words because someone has got to change the uh, uh-huh. description in order to have a fresh new meaning. Uh, I yeah. think that we'll never get away from mental health being a stigma. We have to start with a new idea. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 you know, it's is, really it's it's really interesting to me in, in, in terms of mental health about what's yeah. really happening right now with misogyny and with you know sexual assault and sexual abuse because it's to me 
it's becoming public, but everybody knows that this was going on for years, years, and years, and, years, and that, yeah. it, that it was normalized. Yes, well, it was accepted. So, so to, is what it was. Yeah, exactly. So, so maybe the thing is nor, not normalizing these ideas that are unhealthy and that make people unhappy and uncomfortable and. You know, it's taking a look at all those ideas and unnormalizing them, saying, "No, this 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 should not be normal. This this is not acceptable. This is yes. not the way human beings behave with other human beings." Right, not acceptable. And it does right. it, 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 yeah. it does raise the question about you know, war is pretty pretty unacceptable. War and killing people is pretty unacceptable, and and. We're not here to change that with our film. We're just here to say that we all need to respect. We have to have respect for all lives. That's really what you know our message is, and compassion for all lives. And it's through respect and compassion and love as a major mechanism and a facilitator of a greater vision that these new words and this new paradigm shift can truly come about. So... That's that's our overriding message of this film. That's such an important message. What a great film you're making. I'm so proud to be associated with you both. This is well, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank I don't you. know how you're going to get all this on the screen. That you're going to have to be a genius to get all of this <laughs> across you know, to us we're, because we're, it is what, so what, much. What, what, so what, much. What we're famous for <laughs> yes. is cramming a lot of story into a very small space. <laughs> Good. Well, do you know what? Maybe this is one of those films, Lewis, that you make the film and then someone's going to say, okay, now I want you to take this aspect and go make a film on that and take this aspect and let's look into that. And maybe this will spin off into more films. uh, And so we'll have a chance to get delve deeper into each one of these aspects and find out more. But this film should be uh, an awakener for most people. Thanks. We hope so, and, and you know, I mean, the way we're approaching it, because we're really, at this point, we're we're really going guerrilla. Uh, the way we're approaching is we're going to go up there and we're mapping out what we want to get uh, from Seattle, and uh-huh. then use what we get there as the beginning clay, and cut that because both Sheila and I are editors and Beth and I are writers, so you know, the, between the three of us, we can we can make a film. It's not like we we need a lot of outside agencies to to be involved uh, but the process is going to really be coming back with all that clay and trying to put a narrative together and then look at it and go okay we need this here we need this here let's go raise some money to to do that you know we may need reenactments here instead of photographs let's raise some money to do the reenactments yeah. we may need but I'm really looking at it's just a, a really interesting process because I'm one of those people who needs to know every detail before I beforehand and this is making me not do that this is making me think in much smaller steps and think okay let's get this material then see what where the material leads mm-hmm. and then uh, and it's it's kind of I, I started this is kind of sounds like a, a digression but it's not uh, I started painting about seven or eight years ago, mm-hmm. and that I didn't want to do. I do abstract paintings, and I I didn't want to do 
representa- uh, rep- representative stuff because I want I need to know how it's going to turn out. And the way I paint now, I don't know what the painting is going to turn out. I have an idea for it, but then it's just me and the paint, and we interact with each other. And these these paintings come out that you know people seem to want and buy and want to hang in their homes. So I'm happy with them. No good. But that's kind of how I'm looking at this documentary. You know, I'm gonna we're gonna get the raw the basic raw materials uh, this month, and then come back and see where how we tell the narrative, and then let's fill it in with whatever else we need, you know. Absolutely. And, and, we, and, and, and this is the art of film funding, and we still need all the help from the universe financially <laughs> to make that happen. So, Absolutely, I, you do. You need grants and you need donations because look what a donation would do to bring this film yeah. forward. It's magnificent. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we, we, we did get a donation from um, a law firm in uh, – Las Vegas that we had met and talked to and pitched the idea to uh, a while back while we were in Vegas doing a little bit of shooting. Um, they, 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 they they were impacted by the recent shootings, so their engagement <coughs> was was absolutely on board with what's needed right now. So that's oh, great. Really how that great. all fell into place. But anyway, that's well. Let me that's see. Where you we know, are. while you're in Seattle, you should uh, take a look at Boeing. Find out what they get. Do they have awards or grants? Because they're uh, part of the problem. They should be part of the solution. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. We also have a connection of we also have a connection of Microsoft up there that we've been sort of nursing. And Starbucks, because you know Howard's Mr. The CEO of Howard Schultz. Yeah. Yeah, is is a quite a. you know, fan of the veteran, right. the veteran situation. So, but yeah. even small donations. I mean, anybody who who feels they can help, who 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 feels the subject is worth telling, who feels our story is is an important story, please go to our website, strangeratome.org. The donate button's right there on the right hand side. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> Anything, <laughs> any amount would really help us. We every Thank dime you. that we've raised has gone toward this project so i can believe it and i bet you you get 10 times the value on the screen because you're all so talented you're working together as a close group that's the way that's that's the guerrilla filmmaking style and and what you produce is incredibly good thank you carol so much thanks oh yes thank you both so much and claire we really appreciate your support and your help in the and the program. So, but but yes, we'll, thank you, in six months, Lewis, we want to have you and Beth back, maybe with Sheila too, so we can get an update on what you learned and where Super. you're going. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're going to start doing is we're going to start doing a video podcasts uh, on Facebook. Great. And okay. uh, uh, we're going to we're going to do it through Skype. So I don't know if you have Skype, but we would love to have you on at some oh. point. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, oh, that and, sounds and, like and, fun. And, and that puts now, Lewis, oh. put Skype on your funding list. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Go after them. Tell them you're including that. Uh, no, well, right, right, right now we're, we're in sore need of an airline, Alaska Airlines or uh, Virgin Atlantic. Or United or Delta who fly to Seattle, we're in sore need of 
airfare. So <laughs> okay. if anybody out there. <laughs> okay, I think like we'll, we'll post that. Yeah, Thank I'll you. post that it's on our Facebook. Marriott International, really it looks like they're stepping up to help us with our hotel, which is great. What's happening as a result of the grant, Carol, again, thank you for that, is mm-hmm. that, you know, and the sign of the times being what they are, is that there's that credibility factor. So we're we're starting to engage corporate sponsorship from around the country, which is really exciting and heartening. And and we need more. We really do. This is this is to finish this film. We we just continue to need all the help we can get. And the bigger chunks, they they will get us there that much faster. We'd love 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 to have a final cut by fall of 2018. Um, and so time is of the essence here for us because because the message is really needed right now, and we believe yes, that. Yes, it is. So yes. You're sitting on a lot of unknown uh, information that's been buried and never addressed. Yes. Exactly. Yes. yes. All right, guys. That's, well, that's what's going on. Thank you so much for all the information and for the work you're doing. Yes. Oh, thank you for thank for, you for having us. thank you for everything that you're doing for filmmakers, for us in particular, and. Um, means the world. Yeah, it, it really does. Oh, and, uh, and and your heart, the fact that you're, you know, you're you're a person who lives from her heart. It's, yeah. uh, it's very appreciative. Oh, how kind of you to say this that. Is so Thank you. This is so true about Carol. This is it's, so very true about it's Carol. It's so true. And oh, from the true. heart production is well named. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, you sure both is. so much. Okay, strangeratome.org. Go there and look at his donate button. Thank you. Yes, please. Strangeratome.org. Thanks. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Claire. Okay, thanks, Claire. Lots of love. Yes. Bye. Lots of love. Bye. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.